skull resonating is good for audio processes. Yeah. Otherwise, when you clamped a speaker to your jaw, you wouldn't be able to hear things. Yeah, that's why we evolved that way. Yeah. For jaw clamping. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Bryce. Uh, and I'm Will. And this is SideQuests. It's important that we be chuckling slightly every yeah. time we say that. Yeah. Otherwise, people won't know that we're fun. Right. No, we we have a reputation for whimsy to uphold. It, That's now true. It's an official it's reputation. Codified. Yeah. Codified. I don't. I don't even care. Okay. Because <laughs> we're so whimsical. Yeah, that's right. Why would we codify things? Or codify things. I guess we're going to codify the whimsy in the series of systems. Right. So that's maybe true. we do need to know whether we're codifying or codifying it. All right. Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Just if you have any opinions about those words, and if you could also teach us the um, phonetic alphabet. So when you write it out, it's the what is it? The International Phonetic Alphabet. Oh, I, uh, yeah, IPA. IPA. Yeah. yeah, which. I have attempted to learn, but there's just a lot of sounds that humans make. Yeah, it's interesting that the IPA is called the International Phonetic Alphabet. Well, that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that the NATO Phonetic Alphabet is described as the NATO Phonetic Alphabet. I believe that's what it's called, but that is for an entirely different purpose. It's Alpha, Bravo. Oh, that one. Yeah, I believe that is also referred to as a phonetic alphabet. Why is it phonetic? Oh, I guess because you use phonemes to say... Yeah, I don't don't know, but they're real different. Yeah. So don't try to communicate with us about this word using the NATO phonetic alphabet. Unless you really just want to talk about the characters of... Dollhouse. Dollhouse. Yeah. In which case, you can talk to us about that. That's a good show. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a spoiler. No, there are characters, and somehow that involves those things. The realization that the characters' names were the phonetic alphabet happened to me a little bit in, and it caused me to have a cool experience. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's so mild. Yeah. Uh, It's like, oh, I see. Yeah. Anyway... I don't know. It's an old show. It probably minor spoilers on Dollhouse is okay, but... It wasn't that popular either when it was on. Yeah. Because it canceled after two seasons. Well, the fact that it got a second season at all is... That was a surprise, great. right? Like, it wasn't beloved. I love the narrative arc of that show. Yeah. And I love a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not one of my favorite shows to watch every episode of. Right. Well, especially because the first couple episodes are just not that good. Yeah. It's taking its time. It's trying to slowly build up its narrative over time and then I think they started to realize that it like wasn't necessarily going to do very well right so then they're like well let's actually make every episode have things happen in it and so it starts getting crazy really fast where wild character destroying yeah (laughs) things happen and like the status quo changes between episodes after episode six or so yeah Um, well and the the like post first season mm -hmm. one episode I think for a lot of people myself included that was just really cool because without saying what the story is it is an episode that is set in the future right and you learn that many things have happened between the events that you had just seen and some distant time in the future that you don't know anything about but there are things that are different right and yeah and of course the show is about this like brain memory 
writing mm-hmm. technology that's like being kept secret. And the implication is that if this was not secret or was widespread, it would have major, major societal mm-hmm. implications that would fuck everything up. Mm-hmm. But then they like jump ahead and they show you some yeah. of that and you're like, whoa, <laughs> I'm excited to see how right. we go from here to there. Right. It was sort of this gamble that they did where they made this episode and it didn't air on TV. Well, they aired it eventually, but it aired. They needed another episode for the DVD. Right. There's a, there a contractual problem and they had to... Did it also have to do with a labor dispute at the time or something? A union thing? Um, I can't remember. I get the things... I don't know. He did Dr. Horrible. Right, I know that. Is, is a writer strike project. But it's interesting because uh, it has almost none of the same actors. It has clips that were filmed from the previous... Oh. Oh, yeah. It does show some of the stuff. Well, part of it was that they made a pilot. Right. The pilot wasn't very good. Right, yeah. So but they it, just took a lot of the content from the pilot. Right. Yeah, the pilot didn't actually... It was good enough to get a show made, but it mm-hmm. wasn't good enough to air. Right. So they decided to scrap it and re-include things. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't like a strike thing, but it was a union contract thing where they had contracted with their actors to make this many episodes, right. including the pilot. Right. And they contracted with the distributor to make other right. numbers well, of I think episodes. Well, dist- I think to distribute the same number of episodes, right. but they wanted to not have the pilot. Right. So yeah. they had to make a new episode, but they they could use footage from the pilot, which they had filmed, but they didn't want to use that episode, so they had to make a new episode mm. with different actors. Right, right. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to segue into characters. All right. Because... There's a lot of characters in that show. And in all of Joss Whedon stuff, it's one of the things that he's so very good at in everything that he has ever done. Yeah. Arguably. Right. Well, and it's what's so... It's what's so disappointing about the like limited time frame of television, because it takes time to get these character relationships going. And right. <laughs> It's funny. It's, it's somewhat limited and somewhat feels like forever compared to a movie. Right. It's very interesting in, in the television format, because you end up with the first few episodes being where they're really working out who characters are and then then you start to get into things being really good and that's true on Dollhouse as well. Right. And part of what makes Firefly so special Mm -hmm. is how well it works immediately. Mm -hmm. They also kind of redid a weird thing with their pilot where they they aired it last. The pilot was the last aired episode which is really weird. The air dates are very funny there. Things which is the pilot? Is it the... the pilot is the two-part episode. It starts with the Battle of Serenity. Okay, yeah, yeah. The one that is the first episode on the DVD collection. Right, right. and yeah, it yeah. introduces... Simon Tam is like this mysterious figure, yeah, yeah, yeah. but if you've seen it last, then he right. can't. I did an experiment with somebody, and I showed them the first episode that aired first, and it was fine. They were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Is it the train job was the first one that aired? Yeah, yeah. that was the first one that, that aired. fine. But, uh, so video games also can do things with characters, and they can take a lot of time. Like, a video game is, you know, somewhere between 12 and 100 hours. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, 6 and 100 hours. Or, but, so, yeah. Or, you know, an infinite number of hours, but right. usually not a character-driven video game at that right. point. Well, because that's a lot of content to build. What are they, lifestyle games, where they just right, expect people to only yeah. do that for the rest Hobby of their games. life? games. Yeah. So, I think that character is actually incredibly important in getting people to care about anything that you're doing like people often talk about story like us right 
but I think character is in many ways even more important. Yeah, well, we package them together. Um, And a lot of times what people say when they're talking about story or writing is really character. Right, yeah. And so that's one thing that I think was kind of successful about what we did in the Game Jam with Starbridge Man, which we have an announcement about in a minute, where there's essentially two beings, but one of them is this boss who's a jerk, but kind of happy about it and naive. I think he's a funny character, and I think people responded well well to the boss character. Yeah, I mean, he's like the office space style boss, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. He's like an asshole, but he's mostly just kind of like oblivious. Right, right. Yeah, and he's certainly he's, unfeeling. Yeah, he's evil because he doesn't care about you and doesn't understand why he should. <laughs> right, and I did the voice for the boss, as you may have noticed if you've gone to play it, which I think you should, especially because this is news territory, but we did finish up our post-jam version of Starbridge Man. So we made it for the Ludumdare game jam. So we built it in approximately 72 hours. Yeah. We got it published in 72 hours. Yeah. On the internet and loaded up to the site and then people got to read it and so on. And then we spent the intervening month and a half. Yeah. I don't know how long it was. Some amount of time. Occasionally looking at it and poking at things and right. changing some things. And it's hard to do that because you remember writing that code and you mm. remember all the decisions you made that were like, this is not the right way to do this. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about how the code is uh, terrible. Yeah. But, I mean, it's fine. It does what it does. It runs. And you might see what we have up there. If you had played the original, you might not think it's a whole lot different. And it's not. It's not a whole lot different. There's a few things that we changed in the control scheme with flying your ship around. Yep. You can no longer go backwards. Right, um, which, I don't know, everyone didn't want that for some reason. Uh, yeah, I didn't want it, personally. <laughs> uh, but I got very good at flying that ship around, <laughs> to the point where people watch me do it, like, how do you... Well, I don't understand how anyone's confused about that. It's asteroids. Mm-hmm. I'm confused about how few people have played asteroids. I mostly played asteroids on my Atari, as a kid. That's most of the asteroids I ever played. Yeah, it's also a lot like the Vectrex game. Oh, yeah, yeah. But well, that one, you come to you, a stop. Yeah, you don't have momentum. You There's friction. Right. Also, I think there's something about the Wazda keys. The Wazda keys feel like they're all the same thing. Brazen is it, kind of like wiggling his fingers in some communicative way, but I'm not yeah. sure what he's doing. Well, I'm mostly communicating to my own brain mm. to yeah. try to tell he's me getting muscle what memories. I'm doing. Yeah, because yeah. my fingers know how to play these games more than my brain does. Right. So there's something about the Wazda keys that group together all of the functionality that you do, where on the Vectrex game... Look up the Vectrex. The one that I had as a kid has recently come up to Massachusetts to be near me, and I've played it a bunch lately, so I'm thinking about it a yeah. lot more. The Vectrex is a old, what, is it approximately Atari era video it's game from, console. It's from 1983. Okay, so that is Nintendo. That's when Nintendo old, was released. No, Nintendo's 86. Oh, I believe you. I don't remember. I try to remember whatever. Anyway, I'll look up the Nintendo while you there's a three. It. There's a three somewhere in some Nintendo release. It could be that a game was released in 1993. Could mm. be. Could be anything else. But it's a console. It's an early video game console. It has some interesting features. Most notably that it uses a oscilloscope like vector display rather than a television like pixel display. 
Thus the VEC in the Vectrex. And so it has a very, very different look and feel. And this mm. is a thing that I noted when it arrived up here and I was playing it. I had never put together before. But if you think about old arcade games, there are really two different distinct styles. I mean, they had these unique hardware, so that, that makes sense. But there was hardware that was optimized to draw lines and hardware that was optimized to draw dots. And it seems like you either get colors or clean lines is how mm. it more or less shakes out. But I don't know the tech. It turns out we were approximately both right. The Famicom came out in 83. Yeah, I stored that number in my brain. Yeah, And then the NES came out in North America in 85 and in Europe in 86. Oh, in no. Australia in 87. Sure. So it took a little while to roll out everywhere. Yeah. So it's approximately the same era. Well, anyway, so my point about the buttons on that is that you have a stick on your the left side, basically an analog stick, right. that controls your turning, and then you press a button to go forward with your right hand. So by separating uh... out those two motions, it is considerably easier to huh. think of those as totally separate functions. And that's totally believable. I played these games on the MS-DOS PC, mm. so I think of them as being played with the arrow keys. Mm. Um, the vast majority of classic arcade-style games, I played 286 or 386 ports of um, oh. on the Intel whatever at a couple of different friends' houses. Um, <laughs> gotcha. Oh, actually, I, I think I played something on the Apple because we had an Apple II hmm. when I was a kid. That was my primary gaming device for a while. Hmm. We had a 386, and then later a 486. And I remember seeing the ads for the Pentium for, like, the people in bunny suits or clean suits dancing while assembling microprocessors. Yeah. I don't know why they were so happy. I think one of those ads, one of those Pentium ads had a Penguin Cafe Orchestra track in the background. Oh, nice. (laughs) Which is one of my favorite bands. Is there still... Oh, you emailed them. I once. did email them a couple times, so um, must twice be in my kicking life. Kicking around. Yeah, the uh, original composer uh, died some time ago, but his mm. son has kind of revived the band. Oh, nice! Um, and is apparently he's touring with some musicians. Uh, at least this was some years ago when I checked. But I was oh. like, whoa, cool! Um, nice. But I don't know. It's funny. I was confused by everyone not knowing Asteroids controls. They were also Star Control two controls. So you know, as previously discussed is terrible to control some aspects of that game. My favorite game. Yeah. Is the end of my sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we have some differing opinions. So we We have a character. character. We added this character, which was a little bit just sort of us joking around and what if, you know, you were part of a big sort of faceless corporation and you had some... Right. And so we were sitting around working on this project and, and we like to chat. Really? <laughs> and so a lot of chatty ideas would bounce back and forth, mm-hmm. including like snippets of dialogue or ideas about what dialogue would mm-hmm. be. And so, you know, character happened pretty... Right. And I think very early on, I started doing the voice. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard my say, welcome to Green Tech Space Disposal Solutions, <laughs> so many times. Yeah. Um, because every time you launch the game, I hear me say that. Yeah. And so I often find myself sitting there and just being like, I'm going to check to see if the game runs at all. Right. You know, because that's one way you can write code is just run it and see whether or not it runs. And eventually I hear, welcome to... So many times. It's probably yeah. too many. Our friend Rob, I talked about playing the game, and he, first of all, he described it as something like fun, which I think is a, a good description. <laughs> and I'm proud and pleased mm-hmm. um, with that. But he, he said it was very odd to hear a voice that he knew well coming from a cartoon alien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's purple and has horns. Yeah. That's funny. You had not told me that part. Yeah. Let's see, which 
do we talk more about character or well I want to talk about the code yeah and about how we didn't fix more we changed the arrow keys a little. We fixed some bugs. I right. mean, you fixed some bugs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you fixed the so that it's easier to pick up the garbage. Yeah, there's like little things. If you tried to play the game in the past and you played it now, you would be playing the same game, mm-hmm. except probably every aspect would work slightly better. Yeah. Um, so you probably won't have a significantly different experience playing it, mm-hmm. but everyone who played it now would have a significantly better experience right. than the one you had. Sorry. <laughs> right. Sorry about that. Yeah, like one thing that we added was fire coming out of the back of your ship. Yeah. So it's very clear what's happening when you press the button that makes you go. Because I think people tend to see, oh, a thing on the screen that I'm controlling, and I press the left button, I go left, I press the right right button, I go right. And that's not what happens. Right. Those buttons turn you, and then you have an impulse button. Yeah, and I think adding the fire certainly helps, right? Animation is UI in games. Right, and that's very important in a lot of things. Like, if you pay attention to anything you do on your computer, just how many things are animated now. Yeah. Like you click on a link somewhere and the new page will sometimes slide in from a direction. Right. Which takes time. It's not instantaneous. But it tells you that this is happening, that something is changing by doing an animation, like turning a page. And also, it will often give you a clue as to how to get out of that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, where was the thing that I was doing? Yeah, on... where things slide from. And often, things will go to your taskbar or your dock by actually physically moving to that location. You can turn right. those settings yeah, off. Yeah, it also tells you what happened, right? So, if I click a link and some nebulous amount of text on a web page changes, mm-hmm. but some of it stays the same because of how web design works, you want a consistent website interface, it can be confusing, but if I click a link... And the new text slides in from the left, mm-hmm. then I have this eye tracking thing where I'm like, oh, I know where the new text is. I don't have to be confused about what has changed and what has not. Right. And that's really important. And so by adding fire to the back of the ship, right. it's very small. It functionally doesn't change anything. Right. Like the game plays exactly the same. You press the same button and you go the same distance or you rotate the same amount. But by indicating that that is the go forward button more clearly, I thought it would be much easier for somebody who's just sitting down to the controls to realize what they're doing and what's causing those things to happen. Right, and you might call that animation or aesthetics or something like that, and you wouldn't be wrong, Mm -hmm. but what you're doing is communicating to the player actions, right? And one of the things that's really important about games in general is this feeling of efficacy and agency, and so having something clear happen when you make an action is really important. Right, so it's not a lot. But it's something. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly, in the beginning... Well, so I drew the fire very early on, like during the jam. Right. I just didn't implement it because you have so much time to implement things. Right, and we were working on different spots of code. And it turned out you drew the fire kind of attached to the other model of the spaceship. Yeah, I used the same fire. Yeah, it didn't matter. <laughs> but like Bryce was doing close-up spaceship and I was doing far-out spaceship. Mm-hmm. And the fire from the close-up spaceship didn't end up on the far-out spaceship. And it didn't end up in the close-up spaceship because it didn't really make sense. Right. Among other things because you literally can't right. trigger it um, <laughs> when you're in that mode. Well, that's the whole point. <laughs> also, I added a little bit of dialogue that would help users understand what was happening without actually changing a lot about what was happening. Specifically, helping you understand that you have just died. Right. <laughs> so, um... Placeholder audio has a way of being always there forever. <laughs> right. So, Will was making you be able to die during the jam. 
but I hadn't actually recorded a good death audio for some reason. Like, it just right, didn't... yeah, it didn't happen. And I was also implementing the triggering audio stabs. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, when you die, I'll just trigger this one. Right. And it was the closest one, which was the next time you should be a little more considerate. Right. Um, which is fun and everything. And I actually reused that line for one of the times when you die. Because you can lose in two different ways. You can have your ship have too much garbage and it'll explode. Or it doesn't really explode. You just get talked to. by I'm believe it explodes you can understand because that's what your boss tells you yeah <laughs> when it happens oh, and of course in the game one of the things that is established about your character is that it can withstand um extreme environmental hazards right like explosions perhaps right and probably being in space yeah you know because um, you're somehow you got on this ship in the middle of right. a garbage run yeah and is, therefore became an employee right that's how it works this is again part of the callous nature of your boss yeah he'll hire anyone though so that's good oh. <laughs> so i recorded some things to be said when you die and re-rigged up the boss appearance so that the restart button exists. And that's good. So it doesn't just sort of break and then you stop playing. I also... I wanted to address the fact that you cannot fly the starship from the nav computer. Right. So the, the premise of the game, there were a couple different premises, but one was that you're on the starship that is understaffed. Mm-hmm. And so you have to run back and forth between the navigation computer that has the star map and the helm that can control the ship. Much like the Doctor in Doctor Who. Right. Because the TARDIS is supposed to be flown by six people, and he's just the one guy. That's why he can never land properly. So you have to run back and forth, but people would act like that was a defect in the game right because they would try to fly once they could see where they were going right and then they couldn't and they'd be like oh, i can't do it it's like i guess i'll go back to the other place but by adding the boss being a jerk at you when you try to fly the ship. Right. Uh, so I actually have it rigged up so you have to press some of the flying buttons mm-hmm. some number of times. And then the boss says, of course you can't fly it from here. Right. And you can hear the rest of it by playing the game. Right. And the whole point of that UI difficulty is a joke. Right. And by giving it a punchline... I think people will understand that it's a joke right. a little bit more. Yeah, because it was a pretty subtle joke. Yeah, but I saw people play it, and you can yeah. see some of them will be like, oh, I get it. I see what's going on here. And then they would go about doing it for a while. Yeah, and once you get into the mode of running back and forth between the two consoles, there's some fun there. Yeah, I think it's pretty fun. Yeah. I don't know. And um, I believe that you actually did add this feature, although I didn't notice it when we were first putting out the game, where the ship kind of drifts a little. Yeah, it does. I don't even know how it drifts. So I, I it does something, it <laughs> and it turns out that when you are trying to write a piece of software in between 48 and 72 hours, you write a lot of code without thinking all that hard. Yeah, which is in some ways great. Right, because what you're doing is you're exploring the program. Mm -hmm. or You're exploring the space of what could happen and how you might write the program. Right, and you get a lot of things done. Yeah. So that's great, but it does make it very hard to keep working on the same thing. So, for example, one problem is, and this happened on even the third day when I was working on it at home and you were off at work. I had to 
figure out where the garbage was. Right, and it turns out it's in, like, four different places in maybe four different files. Right, and that's terrible. And this happened again while I was trying to fix things. I forget what feature... Oh, one thing that I added to the post-jam version was screen shake for when the... The heat curtain the, builds up. So the heat builds up, the screen starts to shake, and then after a few seconds of the screen shaking, the boss pops up and tells you to go check your tanks. Nice. So that's part of what we did of just informing the player what they should be doing. But it's kind of funny because before you know like exactly what's wrong, everything just starts shaking around you. And I liked that as a right. timing issue. Yeah, and yeah. They're just two different fractions of the total amount of heat you can have before you explode. But you were trying to figure out where the heat was or something probably, right? Yeah, yes. unclear. So, so there's a programming principle, don't repeat yourself, abbreviated to dry. And what it means is don't write the same code in multiple places mm-hmm. Or don't re-implement something. You know, if, if there's some important number, for instance, how much garbage is in the left garbage hold, you don't want to have that be stored in multiple places. Mm-hmm. And frequently in classical computer science programming education, the reason you don't want to repeat yourself is code reuse. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you want to be optimally efficient. And you write code and use it in lots of places, and that's great. And that's that's true, but it misses the real story. And the real story is that you wrote your code wrong the first time. Right. Right. And the real story is you want to make the screen shake based on how much heat you have. So you want to figure out where that is. And it turns out it's stored in the big outer ship or the little version of the ship in space and not but it should be in one spot and then everything else just points to that one spot and it should be very clear there should be like a garbage script right and so the game we made uh, if you haven't played it well do so it's fun it won't take that long but if you haven't played it it contains two main modes you are either flying around your starship in this kind of asteroid style space exploration mode Mm -hmm. going from planet to planet picking up garbage going to a black hole shooting in a black hole or you're running around on your starship or I don't know not running sliding uh, what's the word? You're like squirming? A, yeah, you're, you're like a snake or a worm kind of yeah. body. Yeah, you definitely have... You don't have feet. Slithering. Yeah, you're slithering kind um, of. You're more inchworming, I guess, because yeah. you're sort of accordion. Yeah, your you're verbing around, and you can run from console to console, and you can run to the back, and you can move from the garbage around. So you're either in the star map mode or the navigation mode, whether it's like a zoomed out tiny ship or mm-hmm. you're on the zoomed in ship. And the problem is that we wrote this more or less as two different mm-hmm. programs, which yeah. makes sense. By two different people. Right, because we were paralyzing our work, and even when, like, I was working on two different parts, or even if you were working on two different like, it still makes sense to break it into pieces Mm -hmm. and consider them separately. Right. Because it wasn't apparent necessarily how connected they would be. Right. Although, in retrospect, maybe it was. Right. Well, in both cases, there's this idea of the ship. Right. And so what happened was that instead of having one single data structure that was the ship, we essentially had two different data structures that contained stuff. We had two different data structures that were the scene. Each contained information about the ship, and we had to copy that information back and forth whenever it got changed. Yeah, and that's very experienced. 
expedient right. when you're very quickly trying to get code out the door, which is what you're doing in a jam. I don't think what we did was wrong. Right, no, yeah. What to we did was, was fine. It was correct programming more or less for the task at hand. Right. But it is not correct if you wanted to make a bigger, longer, more robust project where you kept adding features to it. Right. So you get to this point where you're like, uh, I need to do something with the garbage. And then I'm like, well, where's the garbage hole data stored? And then it's like, well, it's stored in this number and then this other number and then maybe a third number yeah. on three different scripts. And every time it changes, it's supposed to be copied back and forth, mm-hmm. but there's no change garbage function. Instead, every right. kind of way it is changed has its own stuff. Right, and the garbage itself is in a completely different place from the heat that that garbage produces. Right. Since what's happening is that your ship is building up heat. Right. And in fact, the garbage does not produce heat. What happens is there is a heat-producing thing that checks how much garbage there is. Oh, see, I read the code. (laughs) And I did not figure that out. I believe the garbage hold produces heat. Yeah, I think that's... And it checks how much garbage it's holding and says, well, I should be getting real hot now. Yeah, that's true. And then it cools down when there's no garbage. Yeah, and that might be fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Because, in fact, trying to make your data structure model the physical, like the object relationships doesn't always make sense, right? Right, but that should very likely be part of a ship data structure. There should be some single data structure. But like when you start programming and creating data structures, you run into these philosophical questions where you're like, is there a gravity object that moves me? (laughs) Or is gravity a property of me? Right. Or a property of everything else that I then get to interact with. And so the reason why all the changes we made are mostly cosmetic and, you know, things that we could get relatively high user impact without really changing any of these fundamental things that we're talking about. Like, really, the code should be very much restructured is that that's a big project in its own. And right. It, and what we wanted to do was get what we did, polish it a little bit, make it so that it actually works in all the situations that we had planned right. for. Right, I mean, well, we released the game, we sent it out to Lindare, we sent it out to our friends, a bunch of people played it, we got some playtesting, and there were some really obvious bugs, mm-hmm. and there were some really obvious user interface confusions. Right. And we were like, great, let's check off all those really straightforward fixes. Right. And not really add any more features. I mean, you can argue that adding flames is a feature. Right, but it's it's not. I added screen shake, but it's not a user feature. You can't do anything else. Right, yeah. We added a lot to communicate with the player and also cause the game to work. Right. And just occasionally here and there. And also we're working on our other game. And one of the things that's funny is that that's necessary because in order to know whether a game is fun or a game mechanic is fun, you have to be communicating it well to the player. Right. Because you can have the most fun mechanic, but if your player doesn't understand what buttons to press and what's going to happen, the game's not going to be fun, and they'll be like, this game is crap, I hate it, and you won't know why, right? You don't know whether that's because you just had a bad game design, which is possible. Right. The other thing that's important here is that fun is a feeling, so you have to make your game feel things more than you have to make it be a property. So to make it feel fun, maybe adding screen shake is more important than making your move that you can do cooler. Right. And so in a lot of ways, some of these things are more important than adding a whole new feature 
just to make everything that's in there feel more right and responsive. Yeah, and a lot of it is rich. about feeling, but a lot of it is also just about communication. It is mm-hmm. about developing understanding. Right, and that's one way you feel things. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's this whole idea of juice, and it is often recommended to juice things early. So juice is stuff you add to your game that is mechanically. It's all this stuff that we're talking about, actually. Right. Screen shake is like the canonical juice example. Right. Also sound effects, yeah. which we didn't add, which maybe right. we could do later. You know. Yeah, sound and music is the thing that I would like to add. Yeah. And maybe we'll do that in the future. Yeah, the idea of making the things that you do have more impact by shaking the screen or having lasers come out or there's like particle effects that you can do or there's a really good talk of some guys building Breakout. Yeah. They, they have built Breakout and what they do is add the juice features over and over and over again until ultimately Breakout is this like world-shaking, explosion, color-changing, firework extravaganza every time anything gets hit and it just feels better and it looks so much better of a game when they're done oh i mean actually i would tone the I mean, there's a cheer every time it destroys a block. <laughs> right. You destroy a lot of blocks. You don't want to... Yeah! The talk is, is entitled Juice It or Lose It. Oh. I believe it's a GDC talk, but if you Google oh. Juice It or Lose It, okay. you'll find it. A really good example is the game Peggle. Okay. Peggle is approximately the game Plinko from The Price is Right. Okay. It's a pop cap game, I think. Yeah. You know, you shoot a ball out of the top, it bounces off things, and then it hits pegs. Right. And then you have to hit all the pegs. That's your goal. I think you have to hit all the pegs. It might just be all the pegs of one color. It's fun. And it does this thing where when the ball goes very close to the very last peg that you have to hit, Mm -hmm. it slows down and a timpani drum speeds up its sound. It's like as it gets close because it like zooms in and slows down time as that happens. And if you miss it, a crowd of people go, oh. Right. And if you get it and you hit it, it explodes and Ode to Joy starts playing in the background. And there's fireworks and cheering and it's it's like the most exciting event that has ever happened. Right. And it's because you beat this level in a yeah, yeah. video game. And it doesn't matter if it's the first level or a level you tried a million times or it's just very exciting. And it's maybe the juiciest game mm-hmm. or the juiciest juiciest moment in a game that I can think of. Yeah, but I guess I would want to add that there are a couple different kinds of juice, and there is there's the juice that is just pure joy, mm. and I would say that that's that example. Also, um, Hearthstone, all the fiddly bits that you can fiddle with oh, yeah. um, on the the map, the or, chains you can jingle, and there's like an egg. That's my favorite right. one, where you poke the egg a bunch, and then it cracks open, and an eye pokes out. Yeah, and so these like create a great feeling, and they're really fun, and they're certainly connected to the experience of playing Hearthstone. But but it's different from the audio stabs that get mm. played when. When you play a card mm. um, because those are communicating the game state to the player mm. and I think a lot of juice is purely about communicating the game state to the player and mm. I would claim that if you're like working on a game and playtesting it you should get that stuff in almost immediately right? right like get your animations working get your you're not the best animations right. get some animations working very early um, on in Starbridge Man I added the walk animation right. for the character because um, you want to make sure that everyone knows that 
that you're yeah you're, you're walking right and you're facing a certain direction and mm-hmm. all that stuff right? right so like you're making a platformer start with a rectangle but really fast before you get anyone else to play it make sure that that rectangle is facing a certain direction and does something when you right. press a jump button right and even if you're playing Thomas was alone where the final art is literally rectangles you're a bunch of rectangles and squares moving around they they actually don't squash oh. but they stretch okay they don't squash past their initial position I heard the maker of that game talk about it at some point but there's an animation principle called squash and stretch which is if you have a character jump or like do something it will first compress down and then stretch out so it'll get shorter and wider and then when it's actually jumping or you know any kind of action yeah um, and it sort of gives it the impression of like if you're going to jump you're gonna drop your hips first and then right. stretch out and that distance that your leg can travel while attached to the ground is what gives you the power to jump and the same thing is the idea in animation but they very much exaggerate it right I've seen people do like frame by frame studies of Disney movies mm-hmm. where you can see these individual frames that look yeah. completely ridiculous right but are wonderful in the context of the full thing right and there's a lot going on there too which they sometimes call those smear frames right where it's not actually a picture of a thing like right. if you just looked at it it would be like a weird blob yeah but that's okay because you're seeing it for a 12th or a 24th right. of a second and it's mixed between the frames between it right and so you will know what it is when it gets where it's going yeah. and there's almost always a pause of a frame or two or three once you get to the end of that motion and it's the pose that they're trying to hit which conveys a lot of information about what happened or what just happened in the same way that a comic book can show a lot of information in a series of stills if you just put blurry splotches between <laughs> frames of your, of your comic book then you've made an animation you've made an animation I mean don't do that <laughs> just photograph them and then do some kind of process that averages between them and you're done you probably could if you left it held on the other frames you would probably convey information I'm not saying you should do this I think I'm saying you should do it but I'm not saying you should call it a polished product if you do it you should email us and show us what you did because it would be neat to see do you want to take a break for a minute let's take a wee break and then we'll come back with a new topic alright alright so you did have some newsing items. So I don't have a lot of newsing items. Mostly, I wanted to talk about Starbage Man, the post jam. Yep. And we did that. Yep. I also wanted to talk about some of the things that we talked about last time. Right. That I realized when editing just did not come with their full context, or there's more information that it would be worth talking about. First of all, Jeff, who we spoke to on the phone last right, time. Right, our, our angry caller. Right. Is, in fact, secretly our good friend who we arranged to have a call with. You may have figured that out. <laughs> Partially by his distinct lack of anger. Yeah, and one of you, at least, is Jeff. Right. So you know exactly what happened. Jeff also has written the little musical bits that we've Oh yeah, now we have musical bits. Yeah, they're fun. You probably just heard one while we went on break. And we should have said, and we're back. Oh yeah, it's true, because we are. Because we are. 
We have a tendency to start recording so that we can catch things that we say that are good to say. Right. Well, the running joke slash not joke at all true story statement is that, you know, we started recording because we're having too many conversations. Mm. Then we're like, let's do a podcast. And then we have to basically be silent while we start setting things up. Right. It's very challenging. And we were just talking about a lot of good stuff a minute ago while yeah. on our break. But you'll never know. Yeah. It's only, only a tribute. So. <laughs> That's true. So Jeff is our good friend, and we talked about a number of things related to the public lab. Yeah. And I think that you should know about the public lab because they're great. Yeah. And so you should know what we were talking about because they're such a good organization. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about microscopes. I mean, I mentioned it a couple podcasts ago because I was like, I'm working on this project and we were talking about laser cutting and fabrication or something. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that I was working on this project in collaboration with Jeff. And so he was like, I would expect a game design, but I just got all this stuff about Raspberry Pi microscopes. <laughs> um, and it's a project that his organization, an organization that he is a part of called The Public Lab, which is a civic science community science organization they do a lot of different work around the production of DIY scientific instrumentation and the efforts to kind of democratize and make accessible the practice of science so that people can use science to do things like stick it to the man yeah things like track oil spills in the gulf which is I think very much wrapped up in the origin story of the public realm. yeah or in this case with the microscope have a very high resolution microscope you might use to identify tiny particles and like asbestos uh yeah or silica that's from the quarry down the street and you could put some tape you know sticky side up on your windowsill for a couple days and then you could look at it under this microscope as the idea and that you might be able to look at the particles on it and size them and figure out whether they are of a size that is going to kill you eventually it turns out that there's a sweet spot of death yeah where bigger than that you're fine smaller than that you're fine but that sweet spot is very dangerous yeah and it's between like a tenth of a nanometer to like three nanometers or something you micrometer sorry i, I meant micrometer oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Lost all credibility in the DIY microscope world. Uh-oh. We're running out of topics that we have credibility in. So, yeah. So, check them out. Publiclab.org. Yeah. If any of that sounds cool, they're great. And I just wanted you to know... Yeah, totally awesome stuff. And there's a sense in which it's like a distinct topic, which Jeff kind of called us out on. But in fact, there's a lot about game design that is about education. And there's a lot about science that's about education. And mm -hmm. weirdly, there's a lot of overlap between these kinds of experiences and thoughts. Yeah, the more you think about more or less anything, the more it's kind of like all the other things. Right, yeah. It's just one kind of homogenous smear. Right. We've actually downgraded our processes by separating things out into different topics. Yeah. So oh, well. this podcast podcast is fighting back. <laughs> I believe we refer to it as interdisciplinary. Oh, yeah. We're an interdisciplinary podcast. Yeah, that's why we pull in all the funding. <laughs> I don't know if we actually want to talk about the Lampstack game. Oh, right. So, yeah, we made a passing reference to a game called Lampstack. If you are a web programmer of any kind, you're familiar with this phrase, Lampstack, probably. It's, what is it? Linux, Apache, MySQL? Yeah. PHP? Yep. Oh, that's it. It's an acronym. Given that the P is for PHP. It's kind of an, an acronym. Oh, 
yeah. Um, yeah. An acronym. Well, Lambda for <laughs> Lambdas yeah. for JavaScript is maybe a little uh, bit. But it's the pile of software that when you ask for a website, it's likely to go through this pile of software somehow. So, so oh. you have used this, for example, to find this website. Right. Or to find this podcast, assuredly. And pretty much every other website you've ever been to has used this technology. Right. And there's a running gag about there being a board game? It's a card game. There's not merely a gag. There's a Lampstack deck. Mm, and this card one. game has been played oh. twice, I think, at <laughs> least. Jeff can correct me. Yeah, he'll be calling in. <laughs> Informing me that it's been played five or six times, perhaps. Right. It's it, been played once of times. It was not fully fun, but the game is a game in which you play as different parts of the Lampstack in order to serve websites. <laughs> you receive HTTP requests, and you must give correct websites and sometimes they are cats and sometimes you've been hacked and so you're accidentally serving viruses oh. and who made this game uh jeff primarily mm-hmm. and like many game design ideas a lot of conversation at parties have contributed to it right all right Lampstack coming but, soon yeah that sounds fun if you're like oh my god i really want to play a game that's about being a web server send us an email <laughs> yeah we could work on it again it's fun there's an interesting premise there right that's a contact at sidequestspodcast.com yeah We'll tell you that again later. Tell us things if you want. Yeah. Anything, really. The other thing is, in the conversation with Jeff last week, I was talking about this idea that play is simulated work. Right. And I feel I did not particularly articulate this well. This largely comes out of a theory from Peter Gray, who is an educational theorist. Yeah. Well, he's a... We saw him talk once. Well, he's interesting because he was primarily a sociologist. Mm. Or what's the other word? Anyway, sociologist. That's the only uh, word I know. Uh, anthropologist. Oh. Right. I believe that the distinction between these two fields is fuzzier than maybe the fields think it is. Mm. But I think it's a sociologist when you're studying your own culture. It's an anthropologist when you're studying someone else's culture. Could be true. There, um, but there's, I'm sure, some overlap. Because yeah. if you want to talk about one thing, it's very oh. useful to compare it to the other. I think his primary academic background was as an anthropologist, but he sent his kids to this school called the Sudbury Valley School. Mm. I thought they referred to it as this wacky school called the Sudbury Valley School. But then I realized that they have an educational model that is primarily about kid choice and self-direction. And a lot of people maybe would take me saying this wacky school as like a disparaging thing. Oh, yeah. But that's because we haven't really talked too much about your wacky school. (laughs) Right, yeah, which has some similarities and differences, but also has as its primary directive kid choice and (laughs) autonomy. Right, and we've talked about how we work with kids, and that's, they're related, these concepts of kids' choice and But it's interesting because he was an anthropologist and then he sent his kid to the school and then he started paying attention to the school and did a kind of like an anthropological study of the school environment and Mm -hmm. it led him to doing a lot of research and writing on education. Right. And so a lot of what he was talking about was how in many cultures the games that kids play are game versions of adult activities that the people in their culture participate in. Right. And I was talking about some of the other parts of the research which were less human focused but about how predator and prey animals do this also where they um, the predators play stalking games and prey animals build web servers <laughs> <laughs> that's correct no prey animals play hiding games and things like that yeah. but digging digging construction games right they build uh, forts.
Okay, so... And we're back. And we're back. We had a little bit of technical difficulty. The SD card was full, and then I had to format it, and then the device took forever, and... Yeah, it's been essentially countless amounts of time. Yeah. So, we were talking about Peter Gray, who had some theories about how we play, why we play in certain ways, and it's one of the reasons why we play, that at least some subset of play is for the purpose of learning how to adult. Right, yeah, and how to do things. Peter Gray is an academic. He has written an extraordinarily large amount of stuff and published a lot of things. But a couple of years ago, he published a kind of popular book called Free to Learn, which is where most of our information comes from. Right, and we did see him talk at a conference, yeah. the Alternative Education Resource Organization Conference, Arrow. He was the keynote speaker, and he talked a lot about his research and that kind of stuff and a lot of the things that he put in that book his target audience in that case was largely people who had read his book right (laughs) i hadn't but he covered it well and it was good yeah, and it's a kind of interesting set of things. He is writing ostensibly about children and education because he's talking about play as being important to education. But if you flip it around and think about education as being important to play, mm. I think it's a set of ideas that are interesting to anyone that is interested in games and play and what we find satisfying or how we find things satisfying mm. and happy making about play. And we talked about that for quite some time. And then we lost all the audio yeah so to recap some of it i got to space as a potato yeah (laughs) which we'll get back to we're gonna tarantino it (laughs) so game playing feels satisfying and in certain contexts isn't right (laughs) Um, yes so for example something that i have accomplished in a video game feels satisfying to me and that's good yeah you just did something really hard right but then when i try to tell somebody it's not like i built a house i can tell you i built a house and people are like oh wow that must be hard building houses is cool i don't know if i could build it but if i say i got to space as a potato well especially without context that's tricky but it's hard to get anybody else to care about that Right. But also you can live in the house you built. Right. So there's also like whether the physics cares or something. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Rain I, cares if I built a house. I survived that snowstorm because I successfully fixed my roof. Right. Or, you know, whatever. And so, this potato thing, it's in the game Flop Rocket, which is by Butterscotch Shenanigans. They have a great podcast. You should listen to theirs. You can turn all the settings down on your ship, which makes it very hard to fly. And when you turn them all the way down, it changes what your ship looks like. Your rocket becomes a potato with a face. And it's very hard to get to space. And I did it. And I felt incredibly accomplished. Right. Because you did something extremely difficult. Yeah, and I worked at it for, like, a surprisingly long amount of time. triumphed over adversity. Right. But it's really fake adversity. Right. There's no actual adversity there. And I can't be in space now. Right. (laughs) That's not, like, a thing. So there's lots of ways in which the games give you a false sense of satisfaction and that's interesting it's one of the reasons why we say that making video games is considerably more fun than playing them right or maybe not considerably on the day-to-day or in the minute-to-minute estimation it usually isn't Mm -hmm. um in the hour-to-hour estimation i don't know Um, Right. Well, because you're solving real problems. Well, the highs, the best minutes of writing code are more fun than the best minutes of playing games. 
Hmm. I think. Yeah. Well, certainly playing solitary games because yeah. the best minutes of playing games with your friends are hanging out with your friends. Um, right. And that's fun. Right. And that's its own thing. I mean, hanging out with your friends is a accomplishment or it's worth doing. It's it feels one of satisfying. the things that brings our life meaning. Right. Um, friends, family, whoever you like hanging out with, which is really its own Right. Thing. It's a topic for another podcast. It was going to be a topic for this podcast, but the going over Starbridge Man took a very long time. Yeah. But yeah, you have this, this end of satisfaction and it's unclear what it means and what it's for but one way that you can think about video games is like machines for alternately producing like well for producing like disappointment or satisfaction hmm. uh, or unsatisfaction maybe right there's we talk about games being addictive or even just kind of like unpleasant and i feel like a lot of games are designed to be dissatisfaction engines mm-hmm. where you play them and you're like oh i just have to go do that other thing and then then it'll be good right and, and just create that feeling over and over again Right. Which is different from certain kind of classical single-player game experiences, which are designed for you to go through and then feel this sense of accomplishment. Yeah, it's funny how some games will use that sort of... They they will give you an unsatisfying win to make you want to play another level. Mm -hmm. And I talked about Peggle earlier and how it has this incredibly satisfying ending. Right. And some games do the opposite. I mean, the ending of each level, which makes it feel so good to beat a level of Peggle. It's kind of ridiculous how accomplished you feel at the end of that part, you know, of each level. But then you have other games of a similar nature. I was thinking, I want to say it's Snood has a very unsatisfying ending. I Uh, don't remember Snood at all. um, I mean, I remember the game. I don't remember the There's there's a game like that that I remember playing where you get it, you break the last one, and it's like, boop, next level, Hmm. you're on it again. And it doesn't feel satisfying in any way and you're like man I gotta like beat that again but eventually that gets very tiring and wearing right Um, and so it's maybe not quite as compelling but maybe makes you play longer in the short term like in that session yeah I I don't know where this should be for like the maximum amount of time you want somebody to play your game whether you want it to be in a sitting or whether you want people to keep coming back I argue you want people to keep coming back to your game well there's something that's wacky about short sitting games where, like if I'm sitting down to play Hearthstone, for instance, Mm -hmm. I can easily keep playing because the losing was unsatisfying Mm -hmm. or keep playing because the winning was satisfying. Right. (laughs) That's true. But the winning feels better because you've lost some. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've played a bunch of Hearthstone. It's fun. And it's nice because by having 15-minute long games, approximately, 20-minute, I don't know, somewhere in there, you can easily build a uh, hour and a half long gameplay experience out of it or a 20 minute one it's like those paper towels where they come in little chunks You're like you can have three of them and have a big paper towel you can sort of craft your own yeah. experience by having these bite sized units of play and that's true in a lot of games a lot of games have yeah. it's the gameplay loop yeah but quick play sessions is a is for me at least a thing that causes me to play more not less usually right yeah often that's true and it's why I find myself watching like three hours of a television show and not a two-hour movie because a right. two-hour movie is oh too long. Oh my god, who could watch all that? <laughs> I know. So you sit there it's like, well, I think I will watch another episode of The Great British Bake Off. Thank yeah. you. Oh, that was three hours of that? Oh, I see. That show's great. 
by the way. And while you probably can experience some kind of false satisfaction from watching The Great British Bake Off, in my experience, you then frequently gain some real satisfaction from then baking something. Yeah, I've been baking bread. Yeah. And it's been mostly satisfying. I've had, I would say, one, well, let's call it two unsuccessful loaves of bread that I made. I've been making sourdough. And one of them just had this giant air bubble in the top and super dense at the bottom. And mm. the most recent one I did, I have no idea what I did wrong. I have to research. But the whole top collapsed in a terrible... Mm. It was like concave huh. on top. I don't know what happened. I'm going to try again. But it's also fun. And if you're going to watch that show, I highly recommend having the internet handy to check up on what some of the ingredients they're using are because they talk about some things like everybody knows what they are. Mm. And it turns out some of those things are raisins. <laughs> I know what those are. You're right, but they don't call them raisins. I see. You mean dried grapes. I do mean dried grapes. <laughs> Some of them are dried grapes, and you find out that, oh, it's just... Dried grapes. Dried grapes. Or it's just the British English version right. of this word that I know. Right. And sometimes you're like, I have never heard of that. And then there's the wacky where, where like they use cilantro to mean cilantro and coriander. No, they mean or coriander. Or the other way to me, Yeah. And complicated. That's awful when you think that cilantro is gross and coriander is delicious. Mm. And if you are British, then you... You can't have that thought. Yeah. The seeds being coriander and the leaves being cilantro. The leaves are gross and the seeds are delicious. And, I don't know, it's a genetic thing. My saliva produces an enzyme that makes it disgusting. And a friend of ours did the experiment. Yeah, she chewed on the leaf and then gave it to the mouth of someone who did not have the enzyme. But it tasted disgusting to that person. Yeah. Oh. So I have secondhand, it's not thirdhand, it's secondhand knowledge yeah. that it is an enzyme in people's mouths. Yeah. Like it mine. happens at the chewing level, not the digestion level. Not the impulse. And not at the brain level. And not yeah. at the brain level. Yeah. It actually does taste disgusting. And it would for you if you had my mouth. Right. <laughs> I've never seen the Great British bake off but i recommend that you cause people around you to watch it and then they will um, <laughs> for their own sense of psychological well-being will have to produce delicious things which you can then eat right and having been to a cake party as a direct result of this yeah. i highly recommend even second or the show sounds great i'm probably not going to watch it because it's not what i want to watch right now but i recommend that everyone else watch it and then make cake well, I always like cooking shows. Yeah. So it's a cooking show, but with a competition, and they're all very friendly to each other, right. which is what makes it better than other competition shows. Also, I really like learning things. So they teach you facts about baking, and baking is very science-y. There's lots of things like, oh, temperatures, oh, this has to activate at this temperature. Right. This. There are reasons. Right, yeah. There's chemical things going on inside their product that they're making, and you can learn about what those chemical things are. Yeah. Baking. Yeah. It's science. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think we're wrapping up. That's probably true. We've discussed baking. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. If you enjoy the podcast, you could tell your friends. You could mm -hmm. leave us a rating on one of many different software products. Yeah, we're on iTunes and Google Play something. And we're on Stitcher and TuneIn and SoundCloud. Right. But you can use whatever proprietary ecosystem you prefer to mm -hmm. swim in. Yeah. All the podcasts are also up on our website, which is sidequestpodcast.com. 
com. I concur. That's multiple side quests. A single podcast. A single podcast. And I think from there, you could get to the game, Starbridge Man, and you can play it. And you can email us at contact at sidequestspodcast.com and we can listen to how wrong we are or you can send us some animations where you took a comic strip and did a smear oh, yeah, if you frame. Want to just smear frame your comics I'd be curious we said something else earlier about something that you might right. want to tell us but right if for instance you were extremely excited about the lamb stack proposal oh or you wanted to talk to us about something involving phonemes that used the oh, yeah. phonetic alphabet yep that's true any so- Kind of phonetic There's alphabet. a lot of phonetic alphabets out there. We'd be interested in all of them. Right. We wanted to know how to pronounce something. Who knows? But it's been so long that I can't possibly you know. remember. You just listened to it. That's true. So you could tell us how to pronounce more or less anything. We might listen. All right. All right. Well, I'm Will. Uh, I'm Bryce. And uh, goodbye. Yeah. Bye.